it'll be interesting to see what happens on the lower end. I, I still think you're going to see some contraction. I think you're going to see a lot of golf courses go away that didn't need to be golf courses in the beginning. And I think that that's a good thing. And then you may see a rebirth of the true municipal golf course. I'm Roberto, professional golfer and aspiring business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Born. I want to talk about their polo shirts for a second. Yeah, the fit and fabric are on point, but H&B really changed the game with the collar on their shirts. You can pick out an H&B collar from all the way across the driving range. Why? Because it has premium interfacing, sewn-in collar stays, and an English cut that's modern but not too aggressive. Great. What does that even mean? It means you're going to look more polished, more put together. A great collar frames your face and gives you better posture. And in the summer, that collar stays sharp all day long. It doesn't lay down or flatten out as you sweat over six-footers. Check them out at hbgolf.com. Personally, I go for performance fabric playing golf and the cotton polos for casual wear, but all the shirts feature the signature H&B collar. That's hbgolf.com. On today's episode of the Course Record Show, we talked to Brian Ferris. Brian developed Chestity, a 600-acre master-planned community that includes an 18-hole golf course. We talk about building the course, why he sometimes regrets not using Jack Nicklaus as his designer, and the other ups and downs of the business over the last 20 years. Brian also serves as co-chairman of the Pebble Beach Company and tells the story of how his father got involved at one of golf's most iconic properties alongside a couple other folks you might have heard of, Arnold Palmer and Clint Eastwood. Brian is a hard-charging, high-energy guy, and I really enjoyed hearing his perspectives on the golf business. Brian, thanks sure. for being on the show. And we're primarily here to talk about business, but let's, uh, let's establish your golfing credentials. You played in the 2018 U.S. Senior Open. Tell us about the qualifier for that. Well, I'm glad you started with the most embarrassing part of my golf uh, career. And so you already know about it, obviously, by the smile on your face. But so being in no man's land, having just turned 50 and not good enough anymore to play with the young kids. Age wise, I qualified to try and qualify for the U.S. Senior Open. So I said, OK, I'll do that. So it was down at, I think, Plantera Ridge in Peachtree City. And so I went down. I shot 69 in the morning wave and was, you know, in the clubhouse at the you know, number two guy. And so waiting around all day long. And so there's another 68 that comes in. We're playing for three spots. So two other guys shot 69. And it was a guy by the name of Brian Tennyson, who I don't know if you remember his name. He played on tour for a little while. And uh, John Smoltz. And I'm like, oh, well, this will be fun. So we go to the first hole, go to 18. And we uh, all hit the green to regulation. And, and John Smoltz and I are in the fairway. And so I hit a seven iron in there to about 10 feet. And then Smoltz was the last one to hit. And he hits like an eight iron or whatever in there to like three feet. And we're walking up. And I said, hey, good shot, John. He goes, yeah, I'm hoping to end this thing early. And I said, well, that's not going to happen because I'm making my birdie putt. So I don't know about you. And, and so we get up there. Tennyson misses his putt. I make mine. And then Smoltz makes his. So we both birdie the first hole. So we go to the par five on the second hole. And so we go to the second hole and we're walking. We both hit our tee shots and he's much longer than I am, but he's in a better position. We get to the second hole, par five. 
I'm, I'm going to have to lay up with a five iron. So we're walking down and he and I played before at uh, golf club of Georgia. And so we're walking down, he kind of gives me a little ribbing and I give it back to him. And I said, well, you know, what's going to happen here, John, is you're going to try and go for the green. You're going to push your three wood out to the right into the hazard. I'm going to lay up with a five iron and I'm going to be a wedge in. I'm going to make my par. You're going to make bogey and we can go home. And he was laughing. He goes, I can't believe you're giving me a hard time. So I hit my five iron right in the middle of the fairway. He goes for the green, for the green and two with his three wood. He roasts it out to the right, puts it in the hazard, just like I said. <laughs> and the only problem was he didn't get up and down, but either did I. I put it long with a wedge in the back bunker. So we both have a pillow fight and we both make bogey. So now we go back to 18 again. And this is what makes it even worse. But I rinse one off of the tee on 18. And so now I'm, I've got a re-tee because it didn't cross the hazard. And so he pulls his into the bunker to the left. And so I'm like, at that point, I'm figuring, well, it's his, but I got to play the hole out. So I put one in the middle of the fairway, almost in the exact same spot I was earlier. And I walk over to his shot, though, because he's got to hit first and he's in the bunker. And I look at it and I'm like, God, if he tries to go for the green, he may hit the lip of that bunker. And sure enough, he goes for the green, hits the lip of the bunker, spins it forward. He rinses his second shot. So now he's dropping three and he's hitting four on. And so I'm hitting four on as well. And so I hit a seven iron, come up short. He's about three feet from the pin. So I'm like, okay. So I get up there and I've seen this putt once before. And I'm like, I'm going to make this putt. I'm going to just end it right here. I'm going to make this putt. And I take a run at it and I run it by four feet up the hill, leave myself like a four and a half footer downhill. And I'm like, ah. And then of course I have to putt first because I'm still away and I miss my putt and he makes his, I lose to a double bogey <laughs> with a triple bogey. And what made add insult to injury is because it was John Smoltz, the next morning I wake up and I'm just, I still beside myself. I can't believe I gave away the opportunity to play in the US Senior Open. And I'm beside myself and all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up because all these people start seeing my name. It was on ESPN, it was on these golf you know, publications and I'm like, great. So now everybody knows about it. And, uh, and so I was a little despondent, but after all the qualifying sites are over, as you know, they rank them one through, I think there were 20, 25 qualifying sites. So they rank them based on strength of field and Atlanta, I think was ranked number one. And so about two weeks later, after the last qualifying site had uh, ended, I got a phone call. I look at my phone, my phone's buzzing. It says Far Hill, New Jersey on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, really? So I answered the phone and they said, hey, is this Brian Ferris? I said, yes. And they said, hey, you know what? We just had a withdrawal. So it's the first alternate you get to uh, play in the U.S. Senior Open. So I was like, oh, this is great. So now after that, since I didn't truly qualify, I lost in the playoff, I said, okay, I've got three goals when I get there. So one is don't hit anybody in the gallery with a golf ball. Two is don't finish last. And three is make sure I beat John Smoltz. And so <laughs> I accomplished all three. And nice. So it, was a great ex- it was a great experience though. Nice. Any kind of playoff you can get in with a first ballot Hall of Famer is not so bad. And then I saw him like a week after he played at the Broadmoor, right? In Colorado. Yeah. It was at the Broadmoor. Yeah. I saw him and he was like, Oh my, he was like, still had kind of like a look of shock on his face. He was like, it was so brutal out there. I was like, I it, know the U S open is awesome, but it's also the worst. It's the worst. <laughs> well, so obviously never having played in a U.S. open before, I don't know if the U S senior open is equivalent, but at the Broadmoor, that rough was so, I mean, it looked like, to me, it looked like a U.S. Open course. And from my experience with Pebble and seeing how we set it up at Pebble, I mean, that rough was every bit as deep. And they had two people lined up on the side of every fairway, because if you hit your ball in the rough off the tee, 
you might never find it without yeah. spotters. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a great experience, and I hope I get another chance of doing it again. That's why golf is so much fun because you look at what like for for a mediocre amateur like myself, it's still so much fun to be competitive, play in those type of things. And then when you look at what just happened with Phil Mickelson, and it is still a game that if you're taking care of yourself, you're fortunate enough, you know, genetic wise, and you're still in good shape, you can play this game for a long time and still play it competitively. I mean, you look at Steve Stricker and you look at, you know, Phil Mickelson, and, and that's fantastic and a, an inspiration to a lot of guys that still want to play competitively. Yeah. And the key there is competitive, right? You get the reason so many former athletes retire and then play golf is because it's something they can scratch the competitive itch and not tear an ACL playing tennis or not, you know, you can't play basketball when you're 60 years old and not get hurt a lot at least. So that's why the, you know, these fancy clubs and Jupiter and Arizona, it's just full of chock full of former athletes. It's, it's all about getting that, that itch. And then the other thing that comes with it, like I always tell people too, what I love about golf is the places it takes you and the people that you meet. It's just, I think it's fantastic. So I love it. Yeah. So Brian, enjoyed hearing the story there and, and talking about Broadmoor. I, you know, your opinion comes with a lot of weight because you've seen a thing or two in the golf business. So tell us what made you want to get into the golf business or the golf course <laughs> business specifically to begin with? I don't know. Does anybody sane get into the golf business on purpose? I'm not sure. I got into the golf business by accident. I was doing a development up on Lake Lanier called Chestity, and it's a 600-acre master plan community. <clears throat> and uh, I was just doing the real estate side of it. And so that encompassed 600 lots and you know the infrastructure, you know, streets, curb, gutter, utilities, all of that. There was a boat uh, marina component to it and the sewer plant. So I was doing that and we had a, and this is back in you know, 1998, 99 when I bought the land. And this is still on the tail end of it. So if you remember back in, I want to say 1990, 91 is when the National Golf Foundation came out with a study. And they talked about basically because they were looking at golf and looking at the influx of people. They <clears throat> said that at that point in time, we needed to build a golf course a day to keep up with the demand. Yeah. And that's when that whole golf course residential mix was popular and was being successful. And so we were on the tail end of it, but it was still going on. And so we had a golf course developer out of Colorado that was supposed to develop the golf course. And I'm not sure what happened behind the scenes with them, but they backed out of the deal. So they lost some earnest money. And so that's how I got in the golf business because I was dumb enough to say, well, okay, if I've done this and I've done that, I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. And so when I run into something, I'll ask smart people, but I can build a golf course. I can do this. And so I got into the golf course business and so built Chestity and it's a Dennis Griffith designed golf course. And Dennis is a local designer. His headquarters were up at Chateau Alain up in Brazelton. And before I picked him, we looked at two other well-known designers, one of them being Nicholas. And when I look back on it, two things or, or a couple of things come to mind when I talk about Chestity is I love Chestity. And if I could do it all over again, knowing what I know now, I would still do it the same. I think for the money, Dennis Griffiths gave me a great golf course, but it was also under that heading of be smart enough to know what you don't know. And so never having built a golf course before, what I liked about it was Dennis's office was 30 minutes away. So if there was ever a problem, ever an issue, he would be there. He could come out, take a look at it and, and help us through any issues that we had. So I felt that that was a smart uh, decision. But, but I do look back on it and say from a real estate perspective, what I might have done better or where a benefit would have been from a bigger name would have been maybe getting Nicholas to do it. Cause I think I probably would have sold more real estate 
in the very beginning. So six to one, half a dozen of the other. But here we are, you know, 20 years later, been in some ups and downs with the golf business as well. I mean, because when Chesity first opened the public golf market and we were trying to be private. And so we had a semi-private membership until our, hopefully I was hoping that until our, our residential component got big enough and there were enough people that wanted to take it private, we would take it private. And so we lingered in that semi-private area, but at the same time, golf was really booming then. And just to give some perspective to it, like in 1999, 2000, when we first opened, we were doing on the weekends, 200 rounds a day, and we were getting on average uh, about $100 per round. And that was great. And the golf course was doing right and, you know, and, and was making money. And then a couple of things happened in 2007, 2008, when the housing crisis happened. And then I'm not going to get the date right, but that's right around when pure capitalism came into play. And that's with golf now. And, you know, it's a great thing, but I was at the same time, I was a victim of it because here it is where somebody built a better mousetrap. So with technology and internet and everything else, golf now comes along. And before you had to actually call golf courses or, you know, hey, do you have a tee time today? And, and it was all over the place and golfers weren't, you know, necessarily doing, didn't have all the information at their fingertips. Golf now comes along and now you've got teeoff.com and a number of other ones where they aggregated all that information to one spot. So now you have these golfers that at their fingertips can compare prices and can go look at what tee you know, sheets are available and what tee times. And you had a lot of golf courses, I think, that also at that point in time were suffering from being overbuilt. So you had a lot of guys that I think felt that one of their only ways to try and make it was to drop their prices. And so the cost of a round of golf dropped precipitously around that time because now everybody's competing and the, the winner was the golfer because now they're getting on these same courses for half the price. And that happened with us at Chestity where our average yield per round dropped from over a little over $100 a round in 2000 to we stayed at right around $50, $54 a round for a long time. And so we went through a period of time where we were losing a little bit of money, breaking even depending on the year and depending upon how many rounds that we were doing. And, and so that changed the landscape tremendously. So tell me, how do you how do you think about the role of a golf course in a real estate development? Do you view it as a standalone business? Do you view it as an amenity to sell 600 lots? And then as you're building it out, do you view it differently once it's a mature community? What, what's your take on, on Chesty specifically yeah. or just kind of that whole, I would call it that starting with the National Golf Foundation, that 90s, 2000s trend to let's build a community, let's put a golf course in it. How does that all fit together? Yeah. So with my limited experience, again, just one golf course, obviously a guy's out there that uh, have much more experience. And so, but my viewpoint on it is, is that in the beginning, it's an amenity, but I also looked at it as a long-term asset that I felt like, okay, could be profitable. And over time you run it, it'd be fun. Yeah. Obviously loving golf. So it was kind of fun as well. And then it was an asset that I eventually would sell to the homeowners or to the members. And that's the way I looked at it. So in the beginning, it's a, it's a amenity that you want to keep up, that you want to attract people with. But what I found out was in the process and having been through two cycles of ups and downs in the real estate market at Chesity, only about 30% of the people that are buying or in a golf course community play golf on a regular basis. Wow. It's not as high as you think. And so we found it's roughly at about 30%. And so it is an amenity and it does attract people, but it's not the only reason why people are going to be there. And in fact, of the people that live on the golf course, I think a lot of people... It's not because they love golf. It's just because they love the fact that they've got some privacy out their backyard and they don't have, you know, a neighbor, you know, a hundred yards on the other side of them, that type of thing, but yeah. only about 30% play. And so in the beginning, it turned out to be an amenity, 
then in the middle of the development, let's say 2008 and nine, it was something that uh, was more of a point of frustration because we were losing money. We're only doing about 19, 20,000 rounds a year. We're, we're in no man's land. We're semi-private. We're not public. And we kind of bounced along, but I had all this real estate to sell and it was, a still, it was still an amenity along with the boat slips and the marina and everything else. For me at Chastity, one of the things that I didn't take into consideration in terms of how it would affect the absorption rate and why I am still developing lots of Chesapeake was the distance from the airport in Atlanta as well. And so, you know, as you know, if you're up in Dawsonville and Lake Lanier without traffic, you're an hour plus, you know, to the airport. Yeah. With traffic, you could be two hours to the airport. So that changed a little bit of the dynamics as well. But then fast forward to where we are today with what we've just gone through, you've seen a huge boom in golf. Chesty is getting the benefit of it. I also did one thing differently as well is I changed my model and I went 100% public and I got rid of the semi-private membership aspect of it. Didn't make a whole lot of my members happy, but they were getting the benefit of that. We freed up and took back control of our T-sheet. And yeah, so where we were last year or at the end of 2019, we did 20,000 rounds, let's say, and we went public and we went public in like August of 19. And so we've been doing it for almost two years. And the first year we went public, we did 32,000 rounds. Wow. And it was a, it was absolutely the right thing to do. It's been a huge success. We're still in that roughly $60 around range in terms of what we're getting per round, but it's taken something that was sort of a break even or a loss. And I was doing to protect the real estate side to a, an asset that, you know, is turned around and, and, and it's a lot more fun to have now. Very cool. So you mentioned some of the differences in terms of what happened now with COVID, et cetera, but fundamentally, how do you think about the core consumer that you're marketing to 20 years ago when you started the project versus who you're trying to sell the lots to now? Well, COVID had an effect on that as well, because now with uh, telecommuting, because I think, as I say it, I think that the, the corporate world had always toyed with letting people commute from home and and giving them maybe a better quality of life. But I think that in the back of their minds, whoever was making those decisions, never quite could be comfortable with were people going to be as productive as they should be or as we want them to be from home. And then COVID uh, caused the corporate world to have a forced experiment because they had no choice. And now all of a sudden you see these corporations realizing, hey, you know what? There is a hybrid here where we can let people uh, work from home. They can be just as productive. They can get as much done. Their quality of life is better. They're happier employees. And it's a win-win for, for everybody. And so because of that, for me at Chastity, we've just seen a huge boom in sales, in demand, and, and what's happening. Because now people can have a quality of life that they want where they can be on the lake, they can have their boat, they can have the golf course, they can have the North Georgia mountains, and they can still do their job. And they don't have to go to the airport, you know, two days a week, and they can do a lot more through telecommuting. So it's helped us at, at Chastity, that's for sure. So what you're I don't saying know if that is, answers your question, Dan. Well, it, I think it does, but to put a finer point on it, not to put you on the spot too much, is going from 20,000 rounds a year to 32,000 rounds a year means there's a lot of people playing hooky. Is that what you're trying to say? No, so for, for Chastity, what it was a function of, it was two things. And, and so one, it was going public. And so we took roughly when we went through the decision-making and we said, okay, we had a hypothesis about a couple of things. We were able to take back, let's say roughly six to 7,000 tea times a year that we were eating up through trying to accommodate a membership. 
and through trying to accommodate the semi-private aspect of this. And so they were getting the better tee times on Saturday, or we were doing men's golf events. And it was a tough decision, but I said, hey, you know, we've got to try something different. We can't keep beating our heads against the wall and losing money. And we made some assumptions and we didn't know if those assumptions were going to be correct, but we did it. And that also coincided with then, you know, six months later in March, COVID. So I'm going to say of the 12,000 rounds increase that we had from 20 to 32,000 rounds, I'm going to say about 70% of that, 75% of that is because we went public and more people had access to chastity. Whereas before we didn't have as many tee times on golf. Now people would go to golf. Now they wouldn't think of chastity as an option. Now we have more tee times there. They've got the opportunity to book on a Saturday morning. They come up, they have a great experience. It really is a fun golf course. I mean, I've played a lot of golf. And what I say to myself when I leave Chesapeake is what I like about it is I've used every club in my bag. It's a fun golf course in terms of reachable par fives, you know, reasonable par fours, par threes. But anyway, so I think people then get exposed to it and they said, hey, we had a great experience, customer service, and they come back. But I also think about 30% of our rounds were due to people who were at home. They had nothing to do. They got reintroduced to golf. They're spending time with their kids. They're coming out and playing. And so I think that that has been a huge boon you know, to courses all over the, the, the country. And, and I hope that it sticks. I hope that we don't get back into the same situation with golf, which is the two barriers to playing golf are time and money. And really the biggest one is time, not money. And because it takes a long time to play golf. One of the things and I don't know how to solve it yet, and we haven't, you know, haven't really sat down and looked at it, but one of the things that happened in uh, COVID was we gave everybody their own cart. We got a, we have a fleet of 80 carts, let's say at our, our uh, facility. And, and we brought in, you know, 25, 30 more carts so that we could give people their single carts. And we noticed that those first tee times out of the gate, instead of playing in four hours and 15 minutes, they're playing in three hours and 20 minutes. They're playing in three hours and 30 minutes. And, and there's some give and take there because you're probably not having as much conversation with your playing partners and, and the camaraderie and the fellowship, but it's sped up play tremendously because people are going to their ball and they've got their own bag. And, and so, you know, that's something to look at down the road is, you know, how you continue to do that and to make golf a, a faster activity. Because again, I think the amount of time it takes is what turns most people off to it. No doubt. And I think, it's really interesting hearing about going public because I always think of golf courses and I, when I see new projects like, you know, Zach Blair's building this tree farm, I just think of it from a utilization standpoint, right? Like you've got this golf course that sits there and it's open every second that the sun is up and how do you utilize it correctly to maximize revenue and to, and when you think about you guys were hosting member events, so you're taking your best weather weekend in April right. and October and you're saying, we're going to have the member guest, we're going to shut the tee sheet down for three days for a member guest on our best weekend of the year. You release those tee times to the public, you're going to get crazy utilization on those weekends. So when I, you know, I look at Zach Blair's project, I think it's really interesting to follow because he's put it out there, you know, with the prospectus and we're going to kind of get to watch this thing happen. But he's really banking on kind of having an even demand curve throughout the year. It's kind of an out of town model, but Whereas I think he's going to be super busy in the spring and in the fall. And it's, it's kind of a tough sell to go to South Carolina in August for a golf trip, you know? Yeah. So like how you fill that golf course up is, is really the question, I think. And you guys are, you know, it's really interesting here and how, how you all landed where you landed. 
Well, it depends. Yeah, obviously, it depends on where you are. So many things that are beyond your control. So if you're in South Carolina, yeah, the, the summers are hotter and you're better times and you're going to do better in the wintertime than we are because your winters aren't as cold. So it obviously is very weather dependent, but you look at it and then obviously from a from a supply and demand standpoint. And so now in 2021, even though we're slowly coming out of COVID and people are more comfortable, our first quarter this year was better than our first quarter last year in terms of number of rounds and revenue. So now for us, hopefully it's a, you know, a problem that we continue to have. So now we're going to drive it by supply and demand. So now we can slowly tick up price because to your point, not only how do you utilize it best, but what is the optimum number of rounds as well? Yeah. Because where you're generating a reasonable return, but you're not wearing out your product, you're not putting too much traffic on the on the fairways, on the greens, uh, and especially in a place like Georgia, where it is tougher to grow grass in June, July, August, and September. And you do have to watch the wear patterns and your, your greens and that type of thing. And, and the fewer rounds you put out, almost the better that you are. So you, you, you know, you've got to balance that. Yeah. Well, Brian, we've known each other a long time. I just got to tell a quick story about owning a golf oh, no. course. No, because I mean, <laughs> owning owning a golf course is cool, right? Like it's great. And it's fun, but it's 20, it would have been 20 years ago. I started working with Jeff Patton, who was teaching out of Chestity at the time. And the driving range at Chestity is kind of down the hill from the road. And when you own your golf course, he Keep used in mind, to- I think the story you're about to tell was during construction. It was early on. I think it was fully open. And you used to take your, like, you had a, a Toyota Land Cruiser, I think, and you used to just hop the curve and you would just pull your Land Cruiser straight onto the driving range. So I'd be down there hitting balls and this, like, forest green Land Cruiser would just be driving over the golf course, like, over to the range. And I was like, well, when you own the place, that's, that was awesome. I love that. We wanted to make sure that I had carts available for everybody. So if I'm just going to the driving range, you know, we'll make sure that, you know, using the carts effectively. It's sort of a Dukes of Hazard thing, you know. That's right. More generally, we'll close out kind of golf course facility conversation from a big picture, but where do you see the next 20 years of golf course development? Because I see as an observer, you know, a lot of renovation, repurposing, and then a ton of demand at like the uber high end. Like I've heard there's two more discovery land properties under development, but where do you see the next 20 years from a 30,000 foot level? Well, uh, my opinion of the next you know, 20 years, because obviously if I knew where the next 20 years was going, then I would do something and, and, and take advantage of it. But yeah, so the, the Uber high end, and, and I think that all th that also, though, represents an issue that we all have to deal with in, in a lot of different industries, because you're having a bifurcation of wealth in the United States and the haves and the have nots. And, and that's something that you hopefully see that does not continue to separate. And so therefore... Yes, you have these high-end projects that if somebody, you know, makes the right decisions and puts them in the right location, they're not, they don't have any problems. And, and so people can afford to be there. And, and so, you know, but you still can only have so many of those in the right. United States or in the world because people only have so much time. Again, it becomes time because if you have a lot of those people that are members, yeah, they can afford to be there. And so it's supported by the economics of dues or initiation fees or whatever. But how many times do they actually get there? Right. You know, two, three times a year, you know, because people are busy. It'll be interesting to see what happens on the lower end. I, I still think you're going to see some contraction. I think you're going to see a lot of golf courses go away that didn't need to be golf courses in the beginning. And I think that that's a good thing. And then you may see a rebirth of the true municipal golf course. Like I remember growing up in, in, in Northbrook, Illinois, near Chicago, and there was this nine hole golf course and it's burger farms, which was just 
you know, it's just a goat pasture, but it was a fun place to go play. And I think that people, I still think people are, are some people are not comfortable going to a golf course because they haven't spent enough time there and they are intimidated by it. And I've always said, I'm going to do this at some point in time, but I think maybe you could take an old golf course that, you know, has either gone bankrupt or has, you know, been overgrown and, and no longer a golf course, try to open it back up. So you create a golf course that is open to people and exposes golf to people that, you know, want to wear a t-shirt and jean shorts and want to come out and play and, and give that crowd a, an avenue to get used to golf and understand what golf is. Same thing like with what Top Golf is doing. I think what Top Golf has done is great from a golf perspective is they have taken golf and they've taken some of the starch out of the collar and they've introduced it to uh, a broad range of people that have never hit a golf ball before. And I've got other businesses and I've done some company outings there with employees and they've never played golf before and they love it. I think that, I don't know what the conversion rate would be, but I think that you're introducing a different socioeconomic part of our society to golf. And I think that's a good thing because then you're going to take some people that actually never hit a golf ball before and say, wow, I really like that. And that was kind of fun. And, you know, what would it be like to go out on a real golf course? And so hopefully that converts people to go out to golf and, and it, it helps increase the golf population, or at least if nothing else, the number of people that are exiting golf because of age or whatever other reasons, you have an inflow of people that allow us to stay at a, at a static number or slightly increase. And then I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with par three courses or executive courses, because then that allows people to get out, play golf in a, in a two hour time span, let's say, or a one yeah. and a half hour time span and still enjoy golf. But it's been around for a long time and I think it'll still be around. But anyway, I'm not sure if that answered your question. It does. And, and you mentioned the, it's interesting that part of your forecast is the continued contraction in the number of courses. I'm curious, what do you think separates those that will make it through that and be a, be around in 20 years versus those that will that will shut it down are there any defining characteristics that you see really making or breaking those courses so simplistically put i think it's the same as a lot of businesses or at least uh look at it like the restaurant business that i'm in is its location its quality of service and its quality of product and it's those three things because again you know, for the average golfer, and you guys probably know, so I don't know off the top of my head, average golfer is, is what, an 18 to 20 handicap player somewhere yeah. in that ballpark, maybe yeah. a little higher than that. And what they want to do is they want to go out and they want to enjoy themselves. They want to have a good time. And part of that is going somewhere where you've got great customer service, where they walk in and they're treated like they're a member and they're comfortable and they like being there. So that's part of it. It's going to be location-based as well. Because again, like we talked about time. So a lot of golf courses, you, you may have a golf course that's got a better, technically a better routing or a better, better green speeds or, or better green complexes. But I think a lot of the people that come play golf at a place like Chestity, that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about, you know, service. They're thinking about easy to get there and from a time perspective. And then if the product, if the course is in reasonable to good shape, I think they're fine with that. And I think if you offer those things, it's courses that are in the best location that are going to continue to do well. And again, that's because of location. And when they have other options that are more convenient, that's what they're going to take. Now, you do have the population, but that's not who I'm catering to. You have the population that are, you know, single digit handicappers that are five and better that may say, oh, I don't like that routing because there's, you know, too many blind shots or there's, you know, too many uphill, downhill. And so, yeah, they may go somewhere else and they may make a 15 minute drive, but that's not the majority of our customer base. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Let's switch gears a little bit, Brian. You recently took over as co-chairman of the Pebble Beach Company. I'm going to preface this conversation by saying that is my favorite golf course in the world. But let's go back a little farther. Your father was part of the ownership group that came in along with Arnold Palmer. But even more importantly, he was one of Arnold Palmer's best friends. How did that friendship come about? And then how did the Pebble Beach deal come about? So back in the day, my father was running United Airlines. And so, as you know, United Airlines was big in the golf world and they had the Hawaiian Open for years and years and years. And so that's where my uh, father, I got the first exposure to Mr. Palmer and they just became fast friends. They were very similar personalities. They just enjoyed being around each other, had a great time. The circles that they traveled in ended up putting them together as well over a, you know, a short period of time. And so they just became fast friends. And they both had a love of golf. They both had a love of aviation. My dad was a pilot as well and flew. And so they just, they just hit it off. And so they loved being around each other. And it was 30 years of, of great friendship maybe even longer than that, you know, close to 40 years of great friendship after that. And, and so then Arnold, Mr. Palmer asked my dad to get involved at the senior PGA Tour level and the senior PGA Tour policy board. And so then my dad took a greater role at the PGA. And so he was involved with golf in, in many, many ways for a long, long time. And so that's where he um, continued to, to build up a, a number of friendships with Tim Fincham and Dean Beeman and, and, and then obviously Arnold, and they continued to play golf forever and ever together. And, and that's how they got to know each other. That's awesome. That's and great. so, yeah, it was just a long, long time friendship. And, and, and so back, even back in the day when, and when Arnold was doing a development called Isleworth down in uh, Orlando, Oh yeah. You know, my parents, my parents bought a place down there and, and they've been there ever since. And they spend the winters down there. And uh, my dad and Arnold played golf together, you know, every afternoon at the shootout at Bay Hill and, and, and just enjoyed being around each other. So it was a lot of fun. That's great. And then it was, was it late nineties, early two thousands when that group bought Pebble Beach company? Yeah. So the history, brief history behind that is in 99, the Japanese company that owned Pebble Beach that had bought Pebble Beach. And at one point in time, and you guys may be a little too young to remember, you may be, or you've read about it, but the Japanese tried to take Pebble Beach private and they wanted to make it a private golf course. And because of the California Coastal Commission and that Pebble Beach was to be open and accessible and have public access, they were never able to get that done, thank goodness. And, and so the Japanese owned it. And then the company that owned it went bankrupt in Japan. And so they had to sell the asset. And when that happened, the, the architect behind it or the person that started and got the ball rolling was Peter Ubroth. And so Peter Ubroth was a really good friend, longtime friend of my father's. They, gosh, they met each other way back when in the day when my dad was in uh, Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska, opening a hotel for Western International Hotels. And, and Peter was in the uh, travel business. And that's when they met each other. And they've had a long, long friendship as well. And, and when this came about, Peter said, you know, Peter had spent so much time at, at Pebble Beach, loved the place. My dad spent so much time with him there playing in the AT&T all these years. And, and, and Peter said, this is a great opportunity. So he put the group together. He came and talked to my father and said, hey, here's a great opportunity. Here's how it works. I really want you to be involved with it. And the first time my dad said, you're crazy. And, and Peter came back to him a day later and said, no, Dick, this is really, you know, and my dad said, okay, I'm on board. And so they, and so away they went and uh, they talked about it and they felt like it would be a great group to put together 
is that Peter had a great longtime friendship with Clint Eastwood. And so Peter got Clint Eastwood to come in on the deal and be part of the original ownership group. And my dad got Arnold Palmer and talked to uh, Mr. Palmer about it and uh, got him to come in as uh, part of the ownership group as well. So the four of them are the group that went to the Japanese and there were other companies bidding on the asset and they put together their bid and they went and gave their uh, presentation and the Japanese and, and with some other relationships that Peter had felt like this would be the best group to sell the asset to. It wasn't the highest bid, but they felt that this would be the best group to sell the asset to because they would take the best care of this treasure from a land perspective, from a golf perspective going forward. And, and so that's how it came about. And so in 99 is when they consummated the deal and they bought the Pebble Beach Corporation. And, and that's the way we look at it today. And so that is to be a steward of this unbelievable piece of property and to make sure that we continue to improve it every year and to make sure that it's available for generations to come and that it's always a public golf course and that no one person has control of that asset. And that's the way it's set up now. That's really cool. So you mentioned Peter Uberoth kind of drove the bus. Your dad was involved. They were co-chairman of the board for 20 years. Yeah, for, and yeah, 20 years. 20 years. And recently, you and Heidi Uberoth have taken over those roles, which I think is really fascinating. You've both served on the board for 10 years and are now taking over for your fathers. Tell me a little bit about Heidi's experience, you know, such a long track record in sports and the business of sports. What's her role now? Because I view Pebble Beach partly as an entertainment company. You've got the U.S. Opens, you've got the AT&T, you've got Concourse d'Elegance. Like, how's that partnership? And I think it's got to be really fascinating what she brings to the to the table. Yeah, so it is. A, it's really an interesting you know dynamic in terms of the way it worked out because the relationship that my father and and Peter had for years and years and years is my dad is a is an operations guy, you know, a hotel guy, an operations guy and loves to roll his sleeves up and get into things. And, and how do we make things work better? How are we more efficient? How do we do things you know, better from a PL standpoint and that type of thing. And Peter was always a more of a big picture marketer relationship guy. And so the way they referred to each other was, yeah, Dick was Mr. Inside and Pete was Mr. Outside, you know, because Dick was more operations hands-on and, and on property. And, and Peter was more marketing, bigger picture, you know, and looking at those type of things. And the funny thing is I went down my career path, not knowing that Pebble Beach was going to happen. And so I was in the you know, hotel business, restaurant business, and, and now golf business before they did this deal. And so it, for me, it was a sort of a no brainer to be involved and to be put on the board. And the funny thing is I'm kind of like my dad in a way where I love operations and the blocking and tackling of business, building a business and dealing with employees and, and guests and, and that type of thing and P&Ls and, you know, building the bottom line. And then Heidi, her career, she was with the NBA. I mean, if she hears this, I, I apologize if I don't get it right, Heidi, but I think 17, 18 years. And, and she was in the marketing side of things, dealing with the NBA in all of their international marketing rights and opening China. And, and she did a fantastic job, very smart woman and has a lot of knowledge in the sports business and in the marketing world and outside of Pebble Beach and looking at the big picture. So here we are 20 years later and, and, and then for Heidi and I, 10 years into it and, and we're taking over and I'm 
very similar to my father and she's very similar to her father. And so we complement each other very well, just like Peter and Dick did, because we, we don't necessarily have the same skill set and we love doing different things that complement each other. And so it, it works out really, really well. And so, and then the other thing you said is an entertainment company. I understand why you say that. I don't look at it as an entertainment company. I still look at it as a hospitality corp, you know, company. You know, the Pebble Beach organization encompasses, I think it's roughly 6,000 acres of the Del Monte Forest. And in that 6,000 acres, what we purchased was 17-mile drive. So we maintain 17-mile drive, which, you know, people can come in and pay and tourists and drive through the forest. We have four golf courses. So you've got Pebble Beach Golf Links. You've got uh, Spyglass. You've got Spanish Bay. And then you've got Del Monte Golf Course. And Roberta, you might have played Del Monte. I don't know, but Del Monte. I played up, there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's up by the airport, and it's the I believe it's the oldest operating golf course west of the Mississippi, and so that's the fourth golf course. Then we've got the the Lodge at Pebble Beach, the Inn at Spanish Bay, and the uh, and Casa Palmero, and then the Spa and the Beach Club, and so those were the basic assets that were part of the purchase. And so we really are a hospitality company, but we do some neat things as well, like you said, with the Concour. The car show is fantastic. And then you've got the food and wine festival as well. And then obviously the golf events that we have every year with the Pure Insurance First Tee Open, which is a great Champions Tour event. And obviously the AT&T. And then we've had a few U.S. Opens uh, along the way as well. That's great. I also heard a rumor that there was like a water treatment plant or desalinization. You guys own that too? That's in Monterey or is that not true? Well, so yeah, we built, there's a big, there's a big aspect to water because that's one of the most important things on the peninsula and in terms of being able to water the golf courses. So it has to do with a small desalinization plant, but also a big reservoir that we built and how we use the water amongst the golf courses on the peninsula. So you've got Cyprus and Monterey Peninsula, the two courses there, and then our four courses. And so we all have a deal with where we share water and, and it comes from the same source. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's one of the biggest things that we look at in terms of how can we use less water? How can we be more efficient with it? Because it's a resource that is very precious out there on the peninsula. Yeah, that's cool. So where do you see the Pebble Beach Company going from here? Is it mostly a continuation of the vision that your father and Heidi's father put in place? Or are you looking to add sort of a new direction on top of what they had laid out? So not a new direction. I mean, we're going to continue. And like I said, is, you know, we are stewards of this unbelievable property. And that's truly the way we look at it. So our job is to continue to keep it where it is and make it better if we can and where we can from a golf perspective, from a lodging perspective, and from a being a, a good partner in the community and the things that we do with the Pebble Beach Foundation, charitable events, you know, continuing to do things with AT&T. So, so there's a very good roadmap that we have and we're not gonna deviate from that too much. It's still about golf. It's still about the engine that drives the machine is Pebble Beach. As you know, unbelievable golf course, the history, the six US Opens, we're gonna have a seventh US Open. We're about to host the women's US Open, which is fantastic. Just had a US Am there. And so with all that history and with what it is, our job is to continue to make it better. And so you look at where Pebble Beach was 20 years ago, when Dick and Pete and Arnold and Clint purchased it. And you look at where it is today, it is light years ahead of where it was in terms of the facility, just the golf course is better. It's in better shape. All the golf courses are in better shape. We've put 
in that time frame over $500 million back into the facility. A lot of it, which you, you will never see just because it's infrastructure, but making a financial commitment to make sure that Pebble Beach continues to get better every year so that Pebble is set up to be successful for the next you know, 100 years. So that's, we look at it as our job, that's our roadmap. And then along the way to do some fun things as well. And so, you know, Roberto's seen this over the years and, and Dan, you may have as well, you know, with the driving range, with the practice facility that we put in, where it was before and what it was, was not commensurate with Pebble Beach and the experience that you got. And so, you know, we redid that, that practice facility a few years ago. Most recently, we took the old Peter Hay par three golf course and we redesigned it with TGR Designs and Tiger Woods. And it's now called The Hay. And we just opened that up and it is a home run. And it's just another amenity and another thing that's open to the public. People can come and take advantage of. And so it was a great thing you know, for the resort, a great thing for the community. And that's been fantastic. And then there's going to be some other opportunities down the road. We've got the opportunity to build another hotel at some point in time if we feel that necessary or if we feel that it makes sense. So we've got the permits to do that. We've purchased some land adjoining Pebble Beach, some homes that came for sale. And so we did a product on the first fairway. We've got two cottages and some additional rooms. So we've got some golf cottages on the first fairway that we built a few years back. Those uh, are awesome. Palmer. Yeah, they're fantastic. The Palmer and the Eastwood Cottage. One of the great things that we did as well with all the people that come there every year and have never you know, seen Pebble Beach and are not familiar with it, we did a visitor center. And so we took some old retail space and we redesigned it because we have buses of, of tourists and people that come in and out of Pebble Beach all day long, every day. And we've got this unbelievable visitor center. So the next time you're there, and it's one of these things where, like Roberto, you've been there a lot of times and you may not do it because you say, oh, it's a visitor center. I've been here lots of times. I, I understand. But it really is done very, very well. You walk in there. It gives you the layout of Pebble Beach. It talks about the history of it. And it's, it's, it's really educational. So we've done a great job with that. And so it's, there's, there's been a lot of opportunity. And I think there will continue to be a lot of opportunity to improve it. I've been to that visitor center. I think it was 2019 Pebble Beach, AT&T Pebble Beach. It was coincided with Chinese New Year. And you guys were absolutely, it was one bus after another full of tourists. Yeah. And like you said, it's really a cool, it's really well done. I mean, super first class. And I kind of walked around, took five minutes to walk around and buy a couple souvenirs to bring home. But that was a super idea. I, I would have never thought of doing that. But it gives everyone who visits a feeling like they were at Pebble Beach. Even if you didn't play golf or didn't have a beer in the tap room, you still feel like you were really on property, which is a great, really well done. Yeah. And they get to walk down and they go down to 18 and they can hang out, take pictures and, and they can walk out on the golf course because it is a public facility. And so you've got people that, you know, walk around and go all the way down to 10 and look out over the beach at Carmel. And that's yeah, fantastic. It yeah. is awesome. Well, Brian, you survived the, the very difficult questions on the course record show. We're going to close with a lightning round. Just, you know, first answer that comes to your head. Dan's going to lead the charge on some golf related questions. And then we'll kind of flip roles and I'll ask some, some business questions. So this is so a, take it e okay. Take it easy on me. I don't think well on my feet. So. Section called tap-ins. This is the easy part. Tap-ins. Come on. All right, let's jump right in. Favorite golf course. I, I just would have to say, and it's, I'm very fortunate to be a part of it, but Pine Valley. That's a good one. Did you ever play with Arnold Palmer in the shootout at Bay Hill? Uh, I was very fortunate enough to play with Mr. Palmer a number of times. 
And then just a quick memory, one memory that I had is, so they play in the shootout every day. And then in the locker room afterwards, they play cards. They would play hearts a lot of times. And, and I remember this one time we went out and, and teed off. And, and so it was my dad, it was Mr. Palmer, a couple other guys in the group. And so on the very first hole, Mr. Palmer's got a wedge in on, he was a little bit older, so he didn't hit it as far. So he had a wedge in on, on number one and, and uh, knocks it in the hole. And everybody is, you know, hooting and hollering. And he goes, why are you guys so surprised? He goes, that's what I was aiming at. I'm aiming at the hole. And so he knocks it in. And then he made another eagle in the round and then comes in and he's feeling good. And he's like, well, good. Then we'll play some cards. And he sits down and he plays one hand of hearts. And the very first hand, he shoots the moon, which is a difficult thing to do at hearts. And that's just sort of Arnold Palmer. Like those things happen to him. Anyway, so I was fortunate enough to play with him a lot. It was great. Great memories. Favorite AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am partner? Sam Saunders. Arnold's grandson. He and I played together five years and just very fun, relaxing. We always have a great time and tell a lot of jokes and have a lot of fun. He's a good, he's a good man. Favorite hole at Pebble? Gosh, great question. I guess I'd have to go number eight. I just love that second shot. I, mean, I just love that second shot. It is fantastic. You know, obviously the tee shot's not the most difficult, but you're trying to get as close to the edge as you can. And for us mortal golfers, so we, we don't have a rescue club in. We've got maybe a, a seven iron or six iron. And, and just watching the ball hang in the, I just love it. Second shot. Great. Love number eight. If you could build a new golf course anywhere in the world, where would it be? Where would it be? I'd redo Spanish Bay. Wow. Uh, tell us more. What would you redo? I just think it's a great piece of property and I would love to be able to work with the Coastal Commission and, and, and take better advantage of the, of the land right there. They're not making any more land along the coast. And no. so I think that's a, a great opportunity there. Best spot for a fan at the AT&T Pro-Am? Well, the way the grandstands were set up, I like 17 on the grandstands because you can watch people play 17 and then hit their tee shots on, on 18 and then watch the side. And then from that same spot, you can see whether they decide to go for it or uh, if they decide to lay out. Because I still think 18 is a, a great hole as well. For as short as it is, and Roberto knows this, when you look at the stats on 18, you know, guys can get there in two. But I want to say, and I'll misquote it a little bit, but I want to say of the guys that go for it in two, only like 30% make birdie. And there's another 30% that make other. And, and so it really is, even though it's a short for you guys on tour and to hit it so long, it's a short finishing hole. I think it's a great finishing hole. So uh, yeah, you can see tee shots on 17 and then you can watch them play 18 from the top of the bleachers on uh, in between those two holes. I agree with that. Cart or caddy? Caddy, of course. Carry your own bag if you can. Or land cruiser. Your own land, or land cruiser. Or land just, <laughs> just to warm up, just to get you to the practice facility. Uh, land no, land I mean, cruiser with the four caddy. Exactly. I still think uh, if you can, and I love facilities that can offer this in terms of being able to carry your own bag and walk. I think that's great. I think, uh, you know, as we all know, four hours on the golf course is not a whole lot of exercise. So I'd encourage anybody that can to carry your bag and get a little bit of exercise if you're out there. But if not, definitely take a caddy. I'm a member right. of a golf course where they charge you to walk. It's a private club. And it's like, it, it defeats the entire model of a private club. Right? It's like, it's like eight bucks. It's not the, the money. It's just like, if you join a club, you can put your bag on your shoulder and you can go play and it doesn't cost you anything. That's what private club golf was built on. It drives me nuts. <laughs> I am hundred percent with you. I mean, you should be able to just throw your bag on the shoulder and go play golf. Yeah. And that's the way you should do it or find, you know, have a caddy. And as far as caddies go, I, I love to see clubs that, you know, encourage young kids to get into 
caddying as a way to make money. I did it when I was in uh, Chicago. I remember caddying at Skokie Country Club. As soon as I was old enough, caddied at Skokie Country Club. And I loved seeing programs that have high school kids and the things and, and, and the lessons that they learn. I think it's a great thing. So, but yes, clubs that, and I belong to one as well, that there's a constant argument as to whether people should be allowed to walk or even for goodness sakes, have a, a trolley to carry, you know, to put their bag on. And it's like, I, you guys are missing the point. Yeah. Let people go out and enjoy the golf course. But anyway, the Chardonnay politics, as I say, of, of private golf courses. Yes. Yeah. All right. My section is called buy or sell. So we'll just do a couple here. Buy or sell Tesla stock. Depends if you look at it as a car company or a technology company. So if it's a technology company, I would, I would buy it. But as a car company, I would sell it. All right. Putting courses at golf resorts, buy or sell? Buy. Tokyo Olympics 2021, buy or sell? Sell. I hate it, but sell. Fast casual restaurants or sit-down restaurants? Ah, interesting. Sit-down restaurants. All right. I'm getting out of the fast casual segment of the world. Nice. Nice. Well, Brian, thanks a million for joining us. This has been a really interesting conversation. Your experiences in the golf world. I'm sure people really enjoy listening to. I appreciate you guys having me on. Like I said, I, I appreciate you also lowering your standards for allowing a break from the smartest people in the golf industry. And, and I did listen to your last podcast, Roberto, and I just want you to know that I look at you as somebody more than 180 mile per hour ball speed. Okay? <laughs> you're more you're more to me than that. Than just I'm just, a, mile I'm just a piece speed. of meat to Harry, just a piece of meat. No, but it's been great. And I wish you guys all the luck. I will continue to update my uh, Spotify uh, podcast and look for your your latest uh, podcast. I think it's great. All right, Roberto. Great conversation with Brian Ferris. Lots to take away from this episode. Why don't we jump right in? I'll, I'll start with some reflections. I'm curious to get yours as well. The first thing that jumps out to me from Brian is the challenge gene he seems to have. I was fascinated by his story and the challenges that he's taken on for himself and succeeded. I mean, the guy is in the golf course business and the restaurant business. These are notoriously tough as nails with, with margins that are just so, so lean, but yet he succeeded really, really well. And I, I, that really strikes me of people when the going gets tough, they get tougher. I don't know where it comes from. My guess is it's his, his dad. His dad was the CEO of United Airlines, another brutal business that really jumps out to me. How about you? Yeah, definitely. And he's a golfer, right? I mean, he's obviously a good player, played in the U.S. Senior Open. And if your favorite hobby is a game that's impossibly difficult, you probably don't mind a challenge on the business front, right? No question. Yeah, let's jump to something that I think is really interesting, not just in the golf world, but like it's a general kind of engineering problem is utilization. So how do you fill up a golf course? How do you price different tee times? And hearing how they went from a semi-private model to a public model, and then how Golf Now brought transparency to their T-sheet and the pricing. It reminded me a lot of what Nick Kanokas is doing with Talk. So Nick is the guy that co-founded Alinea with Grant Akats, that restaurant in Chicago. And he's built out this restaurant reservation system that basically says, we should have the diners put a little bit of skin in the game. So they take like a $5 deposit and they sell a Wednesday 5.30 p.m. table for a couple hundred dollars. This is an all-inclusive dining model. And then a Friday at eight o'clock could be five or $600. And just being open and transparent. And 
I think I listened to an interview where he said that the first tables that sell are the peak, the top price. Because people are like, it's my birthday. I'm having dinner Friday, eight o'clock. And the bottom prices where it's like, wow, I can get in the door at a discounted price. Give me five o'clock on a Tuesday. And I think golf now kind of did that maybe in a little bit less sophisticated way, but it's definitely a problem that golf courses are facing. COVID golf boomed so much. Gosh, my buddies have just been complaining my ear off about their tee sheet and getting on the tee sheet and the system their club is using. So have you seen any of that? See the time. Uh, I know some clubs here in the area are before had no, no tea times whatsoever and had to go to tea times with COVID. And now the memberships are really divided in terms of like, do we stay with tea times or go back to no tea times? Do we make it automatic or we have to call in to, to book? It's, it's been a, it's been a hot topic around here from some of my buddies too. Yeah. And don't you think it's not that complicated of a problem when you think about it from kind of a math standpoint, or you could give this as a case study to a bunch of college senior design guys. You're just trying to fill up a golf course that has 18 holes in a certain way and try to, you know, maximize revenue and minimize a bunch of bottlenecks. Like it's really not that complicated, but for years and years, like you said, it was maybe a piece of paper in the pro shop or there were no tee times. So I think it's not that hard of a problem to solve. It's probably just more grabbing the membership and, and pulling them along. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, th I think on the surface, the golf.com or golfnow.com problem is an operations problem, but there were some secondary, perhaps unintended consequences there that are all about uh, a positioning problem for clubs. And here's what I mean by that. Your point is very true. Like how do you smooth out demand so you're not packed at 8 a.m. but dead at noon, right? And that, that's very true. So you can get people through and price discriminate as a way to do it. But what Brian describes too is the race at the bottom that it created, right? Golf courses all of a sudden were competing against one another on price much more vigorously than they were before. But that's that's something that was difficult for the clubs and made, made their viability um, very challenged regardless of utilization. So that was a that was a secondary way that that was very brutal. Now the winner is the, is the golfer, as, as Brian referenced, but it's uh, but it's tough if you're in Brian's position with, with a course like Chastity. How do you make that work and balance the need to utilize while also try to keep the place and the lights on with prices having to drop so low? Yeah, and it's you're selling air, right? The golf course is there either way. It's like selling radio advertisements. It's a it's a little probably a little more complicated model than I I was giving it credit for you know, two minutes ago. So you're selling a tea time for 60 bucks. Well, if it's nine o'clock in the morning and that tea time at noon is empty, why not put it on golfnow.com for $20? It's going to go to waste. The greens have been mowed and the golf course is sitting there. So flip that around. All of a sudden, if you're the consumer, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to wait till this thing goes on clearance. I know I'm playing Thursday. I'll get online. I'll see what's on clearance because the tea times will be open. And so it's, it is a bit, it is a bit of a conundrum, you know? Yeah. That whole training the consumer to wait for clearance is that's a tough one, right? Like that's, that's what drove JC Penny down into the, into the ground. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a really tough balance between selling the tea time, but also setting expectations around what's the right price to pay long-term. So I, 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 I appreciate the challenge that's in there and it's a, a tough balance to strike. Yeah, no doubt. The other thing that I thought that jumped off the page to me was, Brian's take on 
bifurcation of wealth in the U.S. and how that manifests itself in the golf business. So, you know, my background in the golf I've got to play, I get a little bit of exposure to these uber high-end projects. And it's just crazy to me that kind of one, they just keep coming, right? I mentioned that there's a couple more discovery properties coming. And he said something that I have always thought about. Yes, those clubs could be financially viable because there's a lot of capital in this world right now. And you can afford a big initiation fee and a big monthly fee and the club can work. But if it's empty, it's not that fun. And you can stack all the money in the world up, but you only have so much time. And his mentality as a hospitality guy and an experienced guy and a customer service guy, you know, I had never really thought about it that clearly. And I thought that was really cool how he went right there. Like, hey, great. It might work, but what's the experience? What do you think? Isn't it funny how the optimal experience, if you ask the golfer, is typically like, hey, I want to be on the course and not see anyone outside of my foursome, right? Yeah, 100%. But then when you get to the grill, I want the place to be buzzing and I want it to be fun and I want to have drinks and I want to talk about my round and the putts I missed or whatever. Those two don't reconcile super well. So that that, that, that always fascinates me is how how can you have it both ways? Uh, and just a funny comment about the golfer psyche in that sense. Yeah, it totally is. And you absolutely nailed it. I don't want to wait. I want to play fast. I don't want to deal with people on the golf course, but you nailed it. You know, it's, you want to vibe when you get in. So, and Hey, maybe that circles back to the previous conversation. You know, the key is to be busy, but move people through the golf course. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get people around, but you're just not going to have people on property at these really high end top dollar places. Because if you've got a big bank account and six memberships and your customer at one of these clubs all have six memberships, just the limitations of time mean that there will never be more than 10 or 20 people on property at one time. Or maybe there's just those one weekends, a couple weekends a year, but you know, a place that's dead it's just not that appealing. So anyway, it's pretty interesting. Obviously he's dealing with the kind of the lower end of that spread at Chestity, not on low end, you know, you obviously have disposable income if you're going to play golf at Chestity, but it is a, I, I definitely would not want to be in the middle, right? Yeah. That, that middle ground is tricky, right? That semi-private model that Brian yeah. moved away from that, that really seems challenging because even if you get the utilization, then and people are there, the connected tissue isn't there, right? You got this like first class and second class citizen type thing going. Yeah. So the, so the grill's not going to be a buzz. You're, the, even if the course is full, that's not going to make people that happy. Empty's bad too. So that's a nice edge you're trying to strike to make that model work. And that's having spoken to Brian, I am out on the semi-private model. No doubt. Because the only private members you're going to get are the guys that play 22 rounds a month and then they're paying essentially 10 bucks a round. I wonder what the numbers show as far as I remember being a kid in Atlanta with a lot of residential developments. I grew up in the suburbs and there were a lot of semi-private clubs. I wonder what the trend lines look as far as private, semi-private, public. Yeah. My gut says down. You would have to think. So speaking of the suburban model that you that you talked that you talked about growing up with that's another thing that even for the private suburban courses, that's gotta be a challenge for them too, right? I mean, we're seeing there's not too much land available in the suburbs anymore. So all the golf course boom from the 60s, 90s, it seems to have largely saturated that. But the but the model that seems to thrive for any kind of new development seems to be sort of this remote either club or 
remote resort model. Think of like Bandon, Sand Valley, or even a place like Valley Neal that's Stokes Course in remote Colorado. Stream Song. Stream Song. I mean, you threw out Zach Blair's in our in our interview. It's an interesting bet, right? Because you got to say, hey, my offering has to be good enough to get people to want to come here. That's the obvious one. But now, thinking where we are here in mid-2021, you got to bank that people are going to want to travel and come to your course. And I'm sure travel will come back in some way, shape, or form. Everyone's dying to get their vacation back in. So the, the, what, what does the next six months look like for those kind of environments? What do you think? Yeah, I think the demand is pent up with people not traveling for a while. Um, a lot of those, like you said, are strictly golf destinations. So your target customer is your golf trip, your buddy's trip, maybe some corporate golf. But they seem to be booming. And I would say that also ties into the local club model. So take my brother, for example. He's 29. And then I have a friend who caddied for me a couple of weeks ago who is also in his 20s. So they're not going to join a club locally. They work in a lot. They're young. It's a big ticket to join a club. They might move. There's some good options if you're going to play two to four times a month. But they've really said like, hey, I'm going to take a couple trips a year. I'm going to get my golf in a four-day fix. So these buddies of mine, they were going to Prairie Club, which is in Nebraska. And they said, look, we can go there for like three days for like 800 bucks a good deal. Like I can budget that in. And if I do one or two of those a year, like it just totally scratches the itch. So it's all kind of interrelated where people have X amount of dollars and X amount of time to play golf. And where are they going to do that? So it's, it's such a shifting landscape. Yeah. The time, the time's a big one, right? Job, kids, spouse, that that's, that's always going to be the, the most straining piece to make work out. Yeah. Let's talk about Pebble. I mean, my favorite place, really cool to hear how I'm sure those guys are turning a nice ROI on their, on their purchase of the Pebble Beach company, but also very evident that they are stewards of the place and are really, really passionate about taking care of it for the long term, which was cool to hear. So I've heard you wax poetic about Pebble in the past. And, you know, I've seen on TV a million times, but I've never stepped foot or had a golf shot on the property. So for, and I'm sure there's a lot more folks like me that are there that have the same curiosities. What makes it so special to you, right? Cause I know you're a huge fan and you've played all over the place. What, what jumps out top of mind that makes that place different? Well, I think the, the land, the geography, the weather is very different than what most people in the United States experience. So if you're from the Pacific Northwest or maybe that kind of Northern part of California, it might not be that special, but for most people rolling into Pebble and it's 65 degrees and a little foggy or in the coastline is just gorgeous. And then just the, the golf course, man, the cliffs, the way the golf course to me, the rhythm of it is incredible. You start with a couple inland holes, you work your way down the coast, you come back up, away from the water and then you finish on 18 like the biggest finish in golf in my opinion and there's just nothing like that that i've played that compares and the service is off the charts the whole even if you don't play if you just go drive 17 mile drive which like brian mentioned i think for 15 dollars or something you can come in the gates and go drive you can see like 
six of the holes on Cypress Point, just driving down 17 mile drive. There's just nothing like being on that, being on Monterey Peninsula and being on that coast. So again, obviously biased. Could go on. I could go on and on, but there's something really, really special about it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, the, the the stewardship of the place really jumps out. In particular, the whole co co-chair and co-CEO model that Heidi Ubroth and Brian have taken on. I've always been fascinated by that. I just as a student of business. I mean, I think it's worked well for a lot of companies. It's also not worked well for a lot of companies. And, and it's tricky, right? It's, it's very hard to, to make decisions whenever there's an impasse, when you have two folks at the very top without a clear hierarchy to, to arbitrate. So I, I've always been fascinated by that. And now Brian and Heidi seem to make it work, right? Brian's an operator. Heidi seems to be sort of a big picture marketer strategy type from what he described. So, so that's a good complementary skill set. But I think because of that, they probably don't necessarily see things the same way. And that's got to be tricky sometimes. So I'm always curious, General, for, for Pebble and other companies that have employed this, how that works. Yeah, right. And, and they're co, co-chairmen, chairwomen, but there's obviously a CEO. So it's a non-executive chair role. So yeah, it, it is, it's interesting. But I think the, the thing working in their favor has to be the long-term involvement. So they've both been pretty close to it for 22 years now through their families. They've seen a lot, like the runway was pretty long to get them where they are. So I think the culture has been marinating for a long time, which is would probably be the bull case for that, for their, their tenure. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, it was really cool. I'd love to follow up with Brian to see what, what he's up to. I feel like it's going to be interesting. It's going to be hard charging. Uh, really enjoyed chatting with him. We need to get on the golf course with him soon. Likewise. Yeah. Well, good stuff, Roberto. And thanks again to Brian for the time. That was a lot of fun. Yep. Really enjoyed it. Catch us next time on the Course Record Show.